Hello everyone, this is James Lindsay. You're listening to the New Discourses podcast, and we are back into our critical education theory or critical pedagogy series. Finally, breaking down uh, Paulo Freire. I want to linger on Freire for a while. I'm actually, frankly, just as a kind of a matter of confession or housekeeping or whatever to y'all, I'm not particularly interested in critical education or education at all, um, as far as like the academic side of it goes. Um, it's very important to cover. I'm trying to do this for you. I know a lot of you are sending me tons and tons and tons of, have you read this person? Have you read this person? Have you read this in education? And it's all stuff in like the last like three years. And the answer is virtually always no. Um, I'm new to critical pedagogy, uh, on, in the sense that I read Freire. I read more Freire. I read some Giroux. I read more Freire. So if it's, newer than like, I don't know, 1990. I probably am not very familiar with it yet. Uh, I'm working my way through. Hopefully we'll get to it, but we've got to spend time on Freire because Freire is like the guy. You have to understand that everything you're talking about, whether, you know, I've done some episodes now on social emotional learning or transformative, I should say specifically social emotional learning. I've done an episode on culturally relevant or responsive, depending on who's doing it, teaching or pedagogy. Um, whatever it is that you're looking at, Freire is the cornerstone, whatever it is, this is all Freire in education. So you have to understand Freire. You have to understand what's going on. And so when I started trying to explain Freire before, or if you remember, this series is supposed to follow the course of the critical turn in education book by Isaac Gotsman, which I'm sure all of you have read by now, because it's so much faster than me going through it, because I'm trying to go into his, the other sources he references. In this uh, sidebar into uh, Paulo Freire, I read just the introduction to the first of the Paulo Freire books I want to talk about, which is The Politics of Education, which we're going to go through in detail because the book is horrifying and it's so important to understand. And I realized, well, we can't even understand what Freire is talking about until you understand how Marxism works as a theology. So I go off on this whole other tangent talking about Marxism as theology, long podcast, been reading Lukács, been reading lots of other Marxists to try to really understand how this works as a theology, because you can't understand what Freire is doing unless you understand Marxism as a theology, because he is a religious figure. And we have to understand that Freire is a religious figure. He is a prophet of the Marxist faith. And in that sense, his character, Henry Giroux, is like his evangelist. I don't want to draw too close of a comparison, but I think I've laid this out before. In a sense, Freire is like the beginning of the New Testament, and he's a character, and I don't want to, don't put too fine a point on this because he's a bad guy, but he's like the Jesus figure of this religion in some respects. And then that positions Henry Giroux as sort of like his St. Paul, who's gone and evangelized for him. And these two become the big cornerstone figures in critical education. I know we have lots of other people that are relevant, you know, Gloria Ladson Billings, Bell Hooks. As we get into kind of the racial dimensions, uh, Joe Kinchelo, you know, Michael Apple, blah, blah, blah. There's names and names and names. And then there's all these kind of new weird things going on kind of on this superficial level, you know, portrait of a graduate. What's that? Um, Gary Howard's deep equity. What's that? All of these ethnic studies uh, initiatives, ethnomathematics initiatives and so on and so forth. This thing has really proliferated. You have to understand that we are at 
we're 50 years into critical pedagogy and it has totally gone bonkers and it's really spread out and virtually every educator for 30 years has been obsessed with this and they've been obsessed with it and filling the space with every possible nonsense thing you can imagine and Freire is really all of it. It's all just repackaging Freire. I think when we go through this episode where I'm going to break down the first four chapters of the politics of education for you, you're going to see, and I'm going to make the case explicitly, that culturally relevant or responsive teaching, the other CRT, is literally just a repackaging of Freire. It is literally just the race repackaging of Freire, or it could be queer, actually, because they're going to see queer culture as a culture. So we're literally just seeing a repackaging of Freire again and again and again. There are other elements. Joe Kinchelow, who follows after Giroux, kind of in terms of major figures and importance, you know, comes up with critical constructivist epistemology or critical constructivism, which is the right name for the mechanism of wokeness, as I've discussed at length, and there's a bunch in race Marxism about it. And you can read about that or listen to some of the other podcasts that I've done on it or whatever. But really, it's just repackaging Freire and kind of fleshing out the... It's not Freire didn't just give like the skeleton. It's like he gave the framework, the whole thing. And so we've got to linger on Freire. So we're going to go through the politics of education in probably unpleasant detail. I'm probably going to end up reading entire chapters after these first four. Chapter five is short, but it's totally lunatic. Chapter six, seven, eight, and nine are each in their own way extremely relevant, relevatory. And what they what they show you unambiguous unambiguously is that Marxism is a religion and it being installed into schools through Freire is really the mechanism by which this new wave of woke identity Marxism took over the world. So we have to understand this. And I actually think that this is much more interesting and important of a book than was the pedagogy of the oppressed, to which we'll turn next after we maybe dip into a little more Gottsman if we need to, to get there. But the pedagogy of the oppressed is literally like the critical pedagogy ur text, as you might say. Uh, I spoke with somebody today who said they used to work in education and they had to write papers on the pedagogy of the oppressed. And I said, what a big shock. And everybody says, well, the pedagogy of the oppressed this, the pedagogy of the oppressed that. What a big shock. That book is the anchor text, but this book is the vehicle. And you have to understand this book and what it is. This is the book, The Politics of Education, by Paulo Freire in 1985, whereas um, Pedagogy of the Oppressed was around 1970. This book is 1985. This is the book that made Paulo Freire big on the North American education scene. Okay? Pedagogy, Pedagogy of the Oppressed and Freire's 15 years of earlier work or whatever before that was largely ignored in the North American context, even though it was running roughshod over the South American context and Central American context to a degree. It was largely ignored until the politics of education came out. And then people like Henry Giroux really put some attention on it and got it brought to the prominence. So as we go through this book, The Politics of Education, I want you to keep one single question burning in your mind. How did this book succeed in reinventing North American education? How on earth, when you actually hear what's in this book, was it the book that changed everything and actually probably is what unlocked the door for this Marxist revolution that we're now dealing with throughout the world? This book was published, like I said, in 85. This book is Freire's big breakout moment in colleges of education. 
largely due to the diligent work of Giroux. We can talk about the mechanical house. Giroux had already been radicalized. Giroux already had engaged in what he called his most important element of praxis, which was to get something like 100 uh, Marxist radicals tenured as um, education faculty across the United States as professors in different education colleges. But the fact of the matter remains, and you're going to hear what I'm talking about, this book was read by American educators and North American educators who were like, yes, when, to this book. This was the book that they were like, yes, this is the way. And it's a scandal in its own right. And the fact that nobody stepped up and was able to stop this in 1986, the year after this book started to have some influence, is shocking to me. Because this is the book that opened the door to the College of, Colleges of Education. So I don't want to linger. I've already spent about 10 minutes introducing this. I want to get right into this book because we're going to try to cover four chapters and it's going to require some reading. Granted, these chapters are actually very short. Um, the first five chapters of this book together are very short. Um, the length of like kind of a normal chapter. Uh, it's actually the book is a collection of essays that Freire cobbled together. Um, some of them, like the fifth chapter, don't even seem to fit in the book. It's about social work instead of about education. But let me give you just a touch more context. Freire's primarily talking not about the education of children, but the education of adult learners, at least through these first few chapters um, of the book. He's talking about the peasant context. So this is like adult literacy education is the primary thing he's talking about. But what you're going to see is that all you have to do is take the idea of children as peasants and then minority children as super peasants, and you can easily graft the Freirean model onto first childhood education, or what we would normally think of as like K through 12 education, and then furthermore onto this culturally responsive model. Um, and right from the beginning, now we're going to dive into the book, chapter one. I already read, by the way, the entire, in two episodes earlier in this series, critical education series, I already read Henry Giroux's, who is a name I've mentioned many times already in this episode, I, I read Henry Giroux's uh, introduction to this book in two pieces. And in that, um, Giroux sets this whole book up as it will, this is why I took the turn into to the Marxian theology. It's very clearly a religious text that trying to pretend to be an education book. And I had to go into that to flesh that out, to understand it, and to bring it to light for you, because you are not going to understand what's going on in education unless you understand that there's a Marxist religion. The Marxist religion has gone through several denominations and revisions, and then it got its major kind of renewal or revival in the 1980s as a result of Henry, or sorry, as a result of um, Paulo Freire being brought through his evangelist, Henry Drew, into the context. That's a little more complicated story, just to, since we're doing asides, uh, it's a little more complicated story because as it turns out, here's a fun little uh, set of connections that I'm not going to elaborate on that we can think about, but it turns out one of these names does show up. Paulo Freire was tied up in the liberation theology movement in South America, which is the Marxist infiltration of Catholicism, which of course was very prominent throughout South America. So he's first a, liber a liberation theologian. Okay, All of his education stuff really ties back to his liberation theologian roots. I don't know that he was actually, he's not a priest. It's not like that. He's not actually a liberation theologian, but he's that's his religious context, his liberation theology, 
which is Marxist Catholicism, or actually it's uh, Marxism posing as Catholicism is a better way to phrase it. And so one of the mentors of Paulo Freire is a, is a priest by the name of Dom Helder Camara. Dom Helder Camara got him, got Freire tied up with a network of other priests, including somebody like Robert Fox, if I have that name right, I'd have to double check that, who ended up getting him into New York and Boston, sort of bringing his ideas to the U.S. and Canada, which is what ultimately got Henry Drew to be aware of him, and then Drew is the one who mainlined him in North American education. Now, this Dom Helder Camara character is actually cited. He's actually referenced, literally, explicitly, by name, referenced in the politics of education. So Freire, this isn't like I'm exaggerating. This is a guy that Freire saw as influential. He mentions him in this book and uh, says that he's actually this kind of persecuted character unfairly. Well, Dom Hilder Camara, Camara is a very interesting character in his own right. Dom, by the way, D-O-M, refers to, um, it's his title, it's like Father. Helder Camara is his name, just so you can spell it out if you need to. And so um, Camara turns out to have also been the mentor to one Pope Francis, um, who many people recognize as a uh, kind of colloquially as Marxist Pope. And so he was, you know, a liberation theologian and he helped bring Pope Francis up. But it turns out there's yet another interesting character on the world stage right now who's friends with Pope Francis in some regard, who also considered Dom Hilda Kumar very important. In fact, he referred to him as his spiritual father. And that man's name is Klaus Schwab, the chairman of the World Economic Forum. And so you have this weird connection through Dom Helder Camara, between Paulo Freire and everything happening in education, Pope Francis and everything that's happening in the Catholic faith with all of that and the wokeness and their weird ties to this new program headed up by Klaus Schwab and the World Economic Forum. Weird ties. Same guy, three people underneath him, three different directions kind of coming back together. Now, that's a lot of preface. But this liberation theology context shines through, and that's why we have to understand Marxism as a religion so we can understand how Marxism can graft itself onto liberation theology. We don't really need to understand that to understand Freire, but you're going to hear the religion so clearly now that I've kind of explained a little bit of the Marxist religion and can bring it out for you. So this book starts, again, the context is adult literacy education of peasants in particular, in Brazil, in Chile, and Argentina is primarily where Freire's working or summarizing his work. And I am trying to keep this general enough where I'm not going to dive into like kind of all of his stories and specifics about the South American context, but we might have to dip into that. Chapter one is titled The Act of Study. The first time I read this, I thought this is a very boring chapter. This is silly. And the second time I read it, which was just recently, I was like, whoa, okay. And that's why it's so important to understand that this is a religion thing. Because if you don't understand the Marxist religion and how it's shining through in Freire's work, you don't know why some of this stuff's a big deal. And that's how a lot of this stuff works. So there are people like Giroux who connect to it and they get the religious aspect, but other people read it and they don't really get it. So that might help us understand. Again, the question you should have burning in your mind is, who read this book and said yes, other than whack job Marxists? And if the answer is only whack job Marxists, how did so many of them get into education by 1985 to make this book be the turning point in education? Uh, that we all have to deal with. 
And thus, since it's the turning point in education, again, this book and the pedagogy of the oppressed become kind of the cornerstones upon which all of our stupid education programs, doesn't matter which one it is, liberatory education, SEL, as it's become transformative SEL, culturally responsive teaching, ethnic studies, CRT, all all this crap in education, all of it, doesn't matter deep equity, whatever the brand name, portrait of a graduate, it's all Freyrian. And so right from the beginning, what Freire does in this is sets up a false dichotomy, as Marxists tend to do, a false dichotomy in education right from the beginning. And so this is, you have to understand, there's a few points to Freire that we have to understand in terms of what Freire and education model looks, uh, the, the model looks like, and it's how wrong it is, but yet sort of seductive. And you see this throughout Marxist crap. Kendi does it, for example. Always these weird false dichotomies that are very seductive to people who are not very discerning. And so he sets up this in education. Either one is studying to memorize. Remember, this chapter is called The Act of Study. You are either studying to memorize or you're studying to offer a central critique of the underlying assumptions, agendas, etc. of the educational materials and the society itself. So in other words, you're either engaging in empty, hollow, useless, rote memorization, very, very low-level garbage posing as education, or... You're doing the only thing that education really should ever be, which is to learn to, he might say, think critically, but he means critically like critical theory, to offer an essential critique of the underlying assumptions and how they link to society. So everything else, like learning actual skills, like um, learning to think in a genuinely critical way, not critical theory way, like critical thinking, all that swept off the table. There are basically two options in education. You're either doing empty memorization or you're learning to be a critical theorist. And that's the dichotomy he sets up. And he poses all of existing education as though it's this empty, hollow, fake thing that's used nefariously to also import the existing values of dominance into the society. Or you can learn to question all that through a Marxist analysis of the hidden interests that are made to maintain oppression that are then promoted by, say, the text or the lesson or whatever else. So what he's saying is that education as it exists, which is, you'll hear, largely, when you understand what he's doing, it's he's talking about it's largely teaching people to read, like phonics, like actual skills-based education that he's criticizing. He says that it's actually there already, and this is, again, that same Marxist trick, that education already largely serves to indoctrinate into the existing society, when instead it could be used to awaken critical consciousness. That is the fundamental dichotomy, false dichotomy, that either education indoctrinates into a bad society that's oppressive, or it can be used to liberate people from that bad society, which is oppressive. That is for him, because everything in Marxist thought is always about the power dynamics put through the structure of the existing society. You either can uphold it or you can destroy it. And everything else, like just learning basic skills or learning skills to succeed within the society that exists, is either problematic or uh, fake. And so you have to get away from things like, why would you teach kids to learn to read and do math if the existing society, which is bad and oppressive, value being able to read and do math? No, you should teach them to be able to read the society and critique the existing society through the text. And so you're... When you're perceiving that our education doesn't care if kids can read but knows how to make them complain, you are perceiving this false dichotomy that we see from the very first paragraphs of the politics of education 
again, the turning point book in Western education. So his false dichotomy boils down to that you can have fake education that ends up reindoctrinating students into the existing society or teaching them to participate in it, usually lying, and most of them won't succeed. That's another point we'll come to. Or you can have liberatory education that teaches them to have a critical consciousness, which means that teaching critical consciousness is more important than it is um, than, than teaching skills or like reading or something like that. And he's saying that if you're not awakening a critical consciousness, you're not actually studying. As a matter of fact, the act of study requires studying on a deep level. Mastery of skills is on the chopping block for Freire because that's not nearly as important as raising consciousness. And in fact, it might lead you to become skillful and thus go into a position where you say, oh, this actually works. So let's work with it, thus reproducing the society. So skills-based education is definitely out. And you're probably thinking if you have kids or you're looking at what's going on in education that that resonates. And so let's just read a little bit to kind of get a flavor of this from chapter one here of Freire's book, again, The Politics of Education. He says, indeed, studying is a difficult task that requires a systematic critical attitude and intellectual discipline acquired only through practice. This critical attitude is precisely what, quote, banking education does not engender. Quite the contrary, its focus is fundamentally to kill our curiosity, our inquisitive spirit, and our creativity. The student's discipline becomes a discipline for ingenuity in relation to the text, rather than an essential critique of it. So we'll continue in a second, but let me break down a couple of things because we've got a couple of Freirian concepts here, particularly banking education. But first, you hear that false dichotomy, right? You can either study or you can become critical. The goal is to become critical of the text through your practice in life or to just reproduce that which the text is giving. And he says the critical attitude is precisely what banking education does not engender. So this is what the nature of the false dichotomy that Freire's whole program is based on. There's critical education and then there's the banking model of education. So there's liberatory and banking. And what does he mean by banking? This is a whole chapter in the pedagogy of the oppressed. He holds up the idea that education is set up on the idea that the students are like bank accounts. The learners, they don't like the word students, are like bank accounts. And the teachers come in and deposit things into their heads. So they have to memorize this. They have to learn this fact. They have to know that date. They have to learn how to do this mathematical algorithm or whatever it happens to be, like long division. By the way, it's an algorithm. And so they're depositing mostly useless knowledge into the students' heads so that they can reproduce that. But what they're also depositing is the um, basic underpinnings of the existing society. Okay, so the banking model of education, he says, doesn't work. It doesn't awaken a critical mindset. All it does is teaches people facts that they don't necessarily even need that are things that the teacher thinks are important and deposits them like in like like ideas into a bank account and then tells the students that literally I've now given you intellectual capital so you can capitalize on that by becoming a functioning member of the existing society. That's his banking model of education. And so some people squander their bank account and other people rise to the top. And so it engenders uh, inequality. So this is what Freire says education already is. And then he offers critical education as a alternative, as in fact, liberatory education or critical, critical and liberatory mean the same thing here, really, um, Marxist. And uh, you can have 
that's the the only viable alternative because everything else actually reproduces the existing society in one way or another. Okay, so so he says the critical attitude is precisely what banking education does not engender. Quite the contrary, its focus is fundamentally to kill our curiosity, our inquisitive spirit, and our creativity. You hear these themes repeated actually quite cynically a lot about the current model of education, which, by the way, if you want a partial answer to how did this happen, we can go all the way back to the school reform movement and John Dewey and how the Rockefeller Foundation dumped tons of money, and it's a Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation doing the woke stuff mostly now, back in the day to actually build an educational model that did actually kind of prime people to be capitalist widgets. Um, so you hear these critiques all the time, and Freire therefore has a hook where he can put his claw and start dragging all this Marxism in. And so he says a student's discipline, meaning the discipline to study the way to learn the material that's being taught, becomes a discipline for ingenuity in relation to the text. So staying within whatever's inside that textbook, which is going to reproduce the existing society from which it was produced, rather than an essential critique of it. So by teaching students to study the textbooks that they're given and learn what's in those textbooks, say facts, history, math, whatever it is, what you're actually doing is you're, according to Freire, is you're teaching them to operate within the paradigm where that textbook is relevant, and you're not teaching them to critique that paradigm. So you are actually locking them in the prison of society even more deeply by teaching them to understand what's actually in the book rather than using the book as a vehicle to do critical theory. So he goes on, when readers submit to this ingenuous process, reading becomes purely mechanical, and this, among other factors, can explain the readers tuning out on the text and daydreaming about other things. What is required of readers, in essence, is not comprehension of content, but memorization. Instead of understanding the text, the challenge becomes its memorization, and if readers can do this, they will have responded to the challenge. In a critical vision, things happen differently. A reader feels challenged by the entire text, and the reader's goal is to appropriate its deeper meaning. Okay, so you still, again, the same Marxist crap is being brought to the surface here. Either you are memorizing a text that you will then reproduce, which is all fake, and that's why people tune out and daydream and don't pay attention, and it's boring because you're just memorizing facts that are not relevant to your life, you know, like how to too long division, or how to, um, um, I don't know, read, uh, something like that, understand the scientific method. When are we going to use this crap? But on the other hand, in a critical vision, you could be basically just doing critique of society all the time. And the text just becomes another vehicle to bring up the critical philosophy. And this is exactly the program. This is the false dichotomy. This is the freaking baloney that he's putting out. And it all proceeds from the assumption that the existing society is really flawed. And there's this better way that only certain people know. And that's where he says the reader feels challenged by the entire text and the reader's goal in critical vision is to appropriate its deeper meaning. So there's a hidden deeper meaning that could be uncovered. And it gets worse because we're going to talk about the hidden curriculum soon. And that's where he believes that there's already a hidden meaning being injected into people, and the critical vision is going to have to break that open. So now you see that I didn't exaggerate, and now you see like where the hooks are and how all of this kind of gets brought in. And so then he offers some advice on studying. Again, this is the act of studying as a chapter. The reader, he says, should assume the role of subject 
of the act. And I want to bring this up because this is so Marxist. So to assume the role of subject of the act, assume the role of subject. It's always about subjectivity. It's always about putting your subjectivity first so that you can create your dialectical relationship with the object of the world that you're trying to manipulate. But you have to understand yourself as a creative subject first. And so the reader should assume the role of subject of the act of studying. It's impossible to study seriously if the reader, he says, this is his quote again, uh, it is impossible to study seriously if the reader faces a text as through magnetized, as though, sorry, magnetized by the author's word, mesmerized by a magical force. If the reader behaves passively and becomes domesticated, trying only to memorize the author's ideas, if the reader lets himself or herself be invaded by what the author affirms, if the reader is transformed into a vessel filled by extracts from an internalized text, that's when he says that it is impossible to study seriously. So if you are reading the book without critiquing the book and the author and its motivations and its hidden deeper meaning that only the Marxists are going to be able to bring out because they think the world is a prison and, for example, that you know God is a jailer that locked everybody in this false world and dictated the order of the world and they have the secret Gnostic sauce to get you out of that with the deeper meaning, the Marxist theory. If you just take the book and read it, now remember, we're talking about basic adult literacy. He literally is talking about learning basic syllables and phonics, very basic literacy. And so you can easily transfer this over to early childhood education, and they do. If you just magnetized by the author's word, so you take the author as, as an expert, mesmerized by a magical force, passively domesticated by accepting the book and its premises, memorizing the author's ideas so that they invade you and you transform into a vessel who just absorbs and regurgitates what you're reading from the text that you are internalizing. That's the way he views education unless it's critical theory. And he says that you can't even have serious study. There's no such thing as serious study unless you get away from that. So you can't study the textbook for its actual contents. It just becomes a vehicle to do critique of the existing society. How are you going to acquire the skills relevant within the book if all you're using it for is to critique the society that produced it? You're not. And so, again, this should resonate with people. You must understand how bad the Freirian model is and seriously how Marxist it is. He goes on and says to explain now what it is. So that's how you don't seriously study a text. How do you seriously study a text? Seriously studying a text, he says, calls for an analysis of the study of the one who, through studying, wrote it. You know, this reflective Marxist... Ugh, it's frustrating. So seriously studying a text calls for anal an analysis of the study of the one who, through studying, wrote it. So in other words, now you're just questioning the author's motivations. You're questioning what biases is the author just reproducing. Remember, we're still talking about freaking a kindergarten-level phonics book. Literally, he, throughout the next couple of chapters, is giving examples where it's like Dick and Jane run, except in the Brazilian context. So it's like, I give my finger to the bird or whatever, like silly little sentences. And he says, that's not the way to learn. And then he says, oh, and so we break down basic symbol, sil, uh, syllables like, you know, pa, pe, pi, 
po poo or something because it's Portuguese. And so he uses those and how they can be put together with like la le li lo lu. And so you very we're talking very basic phonics. We could be talking about simple arithmetic textbooks for kids. And so we to seriously study this text requires an analysis of the study of who wrote it and why they wrote it that way. He says, it requires an understanding of the sociological historical conditioning of knowledge, and it requires an investigation of the content under study and of other dimensions of knowledge. Studying is a form of reinventing, recreating, rewriting, and this is a subject's, not an object's, task. So Marxist. Further, with this approach, a reader cannot separate herself or himself from the text because she or he would be renouncing a critical attitude toward the text. This critical attitude in studying is the same as that required in dealing with the world, that is, the real world and life in general, an attitude of inward questioning through which increasingly one begins to see the reasons behind the facts. This is a disaster. Again, we're still talking about a basic phonics book for adult literacy classroom. Studying is a form of reinventing, recreating, rewriting, and so that requires you to understand yourself as a subject. And if you're a subject who's not reading and studying a text, that's what he's saying in this paragraph, you're a, 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 you are a subject who's interacting with the text, and the text should be interacting back with you so that you can use your subjective understanding of the world and then the text as a vehicle to, as he says, understand and deal with the real world and life in general, so that you move toward an attitude of questioning, so that you can see the real reasons behind the facts. In other words, how if you are just trying to learn from a textbook, rather than using it as a critique of society, which is where you're going to get your skills, is just trying to learn from the textbook, then you are actually becoming an automaton. You're a vessel being filled by the author's ideas with no critical attitude on your own. The best thing that could be said for this, if it wasn't filled with all this Marxist subject-object nonsense, the best thing that could be said for this is this is what you should be doing like at the advanced end of graduate school, and he's talking about teaching peasants who are barely able to read, or children. That's not the time for questioning. Pythagoras, little sidebar I learned in my history and mathematics class way back in grad school, Pythagoras is a crazy guy. You know, the Pythagorean theorem, that guy, Greek guy. And he had an academy, and it really is the model for the university that we have now, from what I understand. And he had a rule. There was basically two categories of students. I don't remember the Greek for them, but they're, they're the equivalent of undergraduates and graduates. And when you were the undergraduate, all you did, you had to listen and learn in silence, as it were, uh, to reference one of our fake papers from the Grievance Studies Affair. You weren't allowed to ask questions. You weren't allowed to make comments unless the questions were for increasing your understanding. But when you graduated and you became the higher level of student, then you could start to question. You have to learn the basics before you can question. When I train my martial arts, or my martial arts teacher is very um, strict about this. Is basically, you know, unless you're just unclear, don't ask any questions when you're new. Just practice. Just try. You don't even have enough of a basis. You don't have the skills necessary to do to ask an intelligent question yet. Just try. You'll get it wrong. It's fine. Just go try. Learn what's there first, and then as you start to gain knowledge and understanding and appreciation, then you can start seeking depth. So the best thing can be said for Freire is he's inverting that. 
He's saying from the very beginning, from the very basic level, you should be focusing on the high-level questioning, deep diving, digging, raising of consciousness that there's something more hidden there. And of course, the Marxist guru is going to be able to tell you what it is and how to understand it. There's your social-emotional learning where they tell you some complicated emotional phenomenon to children and then tell them how they're supposed to feel about that, what the right social and emotional responses are to some complicated phenomenon outside of their range. You have to invert this, and you treat the lowest-level student like they're the most advanced-level student, and that is the friendliest thing you can say about it because that ignores the fact that it's literally Marxist nonsense that completely creates a caricature of education in order to, to replace it with its own demonic approach. And that's not a good thing to say about it. That's the best thing to say about the Freirean education is that it actually gets pedagogy upside down. We'll probably end up coming back to that. So what he goes on to say is the act of study assumes, just if you didn't get that this is Marxist and thus Hegelian yet, the act of study assumes, he says, a dialectical relationship between reader and author whose reflections are found within the themes he treats. This dialectic involves the author's historical, sociological, and ideological conditioning, which is usually not the same as that of the reader. So what you have to do when you read a text is you have to say, who was the author? What was his historical and sociological conditioning that led him to write this book in this way? And what assumptions is he bringing to bear? And how is that outdated? Because now I'm in a dialectical relationship with this where I'm critiquing and challenging the very worldview from which this, again, basic phonics, or we could say basic arithmetic or whatever book was written. He then says in all italics, in his italics, to study is not to consume ideas, but to create and recreate them. So for Freire, it is not about learning the subject at all. The subject matter is not only irrelevant, but it is a distraction that will lead you to fall into the trap of becoming a vessel for banking education that reproduces the existing society. So skills acquisition and development, except if that's critical consciousness and practice, praxis, I should say, becoming a Marxist activist, is never advocated for in Freire. It's, this is so Marxist, it's just assumed, wrongly assumed. The idea, you've heard this before. What do I mean this is so typical of Marxist? It's just assumed throughout everything that the privileged will be okay, so we deal with the lowest common denominator, we work with the literal lowest, most oppressed, whatever, and we just assume, oh yeah, you're talented and gifted kids? Well, they're going to be fine. They're already talented and gifted. Ignore the fact that mounds of research shows that they require special interventions or else they become bored and disaffected and whatever else that they actually require specialized education, etc., to bring out their talents. No, the assumption is the privileged people will be fine. You have to give no attention to them. Black Everybody's life will matter when black lives matter. The privileged are just automatically going to be fine. And so for Freire here, it is that skills acquisition will just happen. You don't have to teach people phonics to teach them to read. You can teach them politics, and the reading will come naturally because they're still interacting with words. So he's just inverting the purpose of education yet again. And so let me just put the point to you again. This man, Paulo Freire, this man's work has become the most influential period on the entire North American Western approach to education since this book was published in 1985. And in the very first chapter, which is literally like three pages long, it's a complete inversion of actual education and the insertion of direct Marxist ideology. What this is, is, and I told you we'd come back to this, is a 
inversion of the hidden curriculum. Okay, so that's why he says what he says here. So I have to explain what the hidden curriculum is very briefly. The hidden curriculum, so there's the real curriculum or the explicit curriculum, and then there's the hidden curriculum in Marxist education theory. The curriculum is math or reading or science. The hidden curriculum are social values, how to order society, how one should study, how one should interact with knowledge, how one should interact with one another. What they want to do is invert that and make the hidden curriculum explicit, the values-based social ordering part, and then let the skills-based stuff become implicit. So, for example, to give you a kind of a picture, maybe they have you know some kind of a word problem in a math book, and they're talking about a kid and his family, and they say his mom buys this many and his dad buys that many. How many do they have total? You can imagine a very simple arithmetic, second or third grade math problem. Mom buys five bananas, but... Um, you know, dad didn't know that she bought five bananas, so he bought eight bananas. How many bananas do they have now total? And what they would say is the hidden curriculum is the idea that there's a mom and a dad in a family. And it's teaching the value that mom and dad, you know, might independently, first of all, that they're a team. And second of all, that they might independently go do things to promote the general welfare of the family. And that if they would have communicated, you know, more directly, then you wouldn't have too many bananas or whatever it happens to be. Okay, so that's the idea of the hidden curriculum. So the idea of saying, well, mom bought this many, dad bought that many, how many does the family have now, reinforces the idea of a nuclear family with a mom and a dad. That's the hidden curriculum. Or you guys should all sit, you know, in rows, and we're going to have kind of structured reading time, structured math time, recess, structured this, structured that. That orders a hidden curriculum that teaches you to fit. And this is the critique everybody always throws to teach you to be a cog in the capitalist machine or whatever, instead of like the Montessori approach, which is a little bit more fluid and, and open. That's a hidden curriculum to make the kids line up and walk in a straight line to, say, the cafeteria at lunchtime, like we had to do when I was a kid. And everybody had to go through the little birdbath thing and wash our hands. That's social conditioning. Line up, follow directions, wash your hands before you eat. Go in one at a time, straight lines. And there is a degree to where you could even say that's kind of true. And you can look back at the school reform stuff and the, the Rockefeller's agendas. And there is a degree, there is a kernel of truth to this. But on the other hand, it's also managing like seven-year-olds, which if you've never tried that is a bit difficult and trying to get them to, you know, use this structure and these boundaries to develop, uh, the ability to self-regulate as well, which of course Marxists don't want. They think self-regulation is the conditioning of the limitations of your, of your subjectivity and thus the conditioning of, um, how you're going to end up being a automaton that reproduces the existing society. And so the hidden curriculum is all of the kind of socializing that takes place in schools. Don't poke, don't hit, don't touch, don't whatever. Um, you know, one at a time, raise your hand if you want to speak, plus the kind of stuff that's caught up in the textbooks, like that maybe there are families or, you know, this is what, you know, Johnny went to talk to a policeman and the policeman said, and da da da, that's the kind of story that you read. And so there's a hidden curriculum that reconditions people into the society. So what we actually have with Freire here then with skills-based stuff is an inversion of the hidden curriculum. Marxist educators believe that the schools teach their subjects explicitly in cultural values, norms, and so on implicitly, and that's called the hidden curriculum. And the Marxists want to invert this they want to teach Marxist and cultural values explicitly. That's literally the program of social-emotional learning and why they want to insert it into every single subject. 
and then they're going to teach their subjects implicitly. So if you teach, this is the Freirean, this is like a second big point of the Freirean project. If you teach the politics, then the skills acquisition will come along for the ride. And of course, the data are showing that it doesn't work. We've had all this crap in our schools for a while, and literacy rates, math competency rates, grade level performance rates are in the toilet. It's really bad. It doesn't actually work. But they don't care because they don't actually need people to be competent. They need people to be Marxists. The real truth is they're redefining competence in being a Marxist. The more Marxist you are, the more competent you are, the more critical your consciousness and more uh, vibrant your activism, the more uh, competent you are. And so DEI officers are highly skilled at being Marxist, so that's why they have a competence to be hired. And they're going to make sure that other people are going to be hired according to that fake, phony political competence structure. But actually learning to read and do math falls to the wayside as a result of this. So it's yet another inversion. Of course, Marxism is always an inversion of reality, always an inversion of what works. And this inversion goes even deeper because this is what I said a minute ago. Freire is really calling to the task of a researcher, of an advanced, you know, mature student as a strong skills based already, which requires developing skills first. And He's flipping that over. Let's do the advanced questioning of society. Question the author. Could you imagine sitting down with a second grader and trying to get them to look at a basic arithmetic book and then spend all your time talking about, well, what are the author's biases? What social historical condition was he working in that caused him to write a math book this way and to choose bananas instead of cantaloupes or whatever else for the math problem? What this actually is, though, and this is key, is it also assumes, and as a super hidden curriculum, a subtle erasure of the innocence of children. If we're going to, or I mean, in this case, he's talking about peasants, but if we go to children, which is obviously a very easy jump to make, and it's exactly what our education system did, innocent children have to learn the basics first and build up. But if you assume that the innocence of children is a lie, then you can indoctrinate them with the politics first. And that's an assumption that treating the children as innocent and needing, like, in this case, literally innocent to, say, mathematics. They're new to it. Um, treating them in that regard uh, gets, the, gets the educational program wrong. So this is, again, another subtle erasure of the innocence of children. But it's also used, in this case, to invert the entire pedagogical approach. Um, we're going to see a lot more inversions of all of education and pedagogy throughout Freire's work. It's absolutely unbelievable this guy was accepted as the model for how education was going to work. And I think it could only have happened by having a institutional capture at the level of personnel uh, before this book was introduced. But to paraphrase Marx just for fun, as we close out chapter one of The Politics of Education, Freire literally takes education and stands it on its head, which is, of course, all Marxism does with reality is takes it and stands it on its head. The second chapter of this book is adult literacy, the ingenuous and the critical visions. So he's going to compare these specifically in the context of adult literacy now. He just talked about the act of studying. Now it's going to go directly into, like I said, adult literacy as the context. So Freire's um, Bazaar, which is to say Marxist view of education, is a peculiar caricature of education in the same way that Marx's idea of capitalism is a peculiar caricature of a market economy based on property rights. I don't know if you knew, 
Marx invented the word capitalism. It's the ideology that capital is good and should be had, that there should be this kind of private property that you can use to create more private property. That's capital, very special kind of property. And the ideology of capitalism is that this works and this is why it works and this is how it works and this is why we should have it and this is why people should be able to do it, blah, blah, blah. And so capitalism is a caricature of a market economy based in property rights. Here we have Freire reproducing this exact same caricature about education. This is just like, you know, this is what we just heard. This is just like Kendi or, or Kendi does this constantly with like racial tropes. He brings up a racial trope and then just says all white people believe this, which is preposterous. And Marx does it obviously with capitalism and some of his other ideas. Well, Freire is what he's doing is he's taking the worst aspects and outcomes or what happens with the bottom of the barrel, most difficult, we'll say students or learners, and then constructs this cartoonish image of what he wants to criticize out of that. And he does this right after saying that study has to take you deeper than caricatures, which is kind of ironic, but this is what happens when you're projecting. Um, when I say the worst aspects and outcomes, those are easy to understand on the su superficial level, but a deeper kind of way you can see that is as a, as a former teacher myself, you know, you have certain students you that just can't get it, right? And so what we're going to read is this example where that he gives uh, to kind of set the stage for what we're about to hear. He gives this example of peasants that they teach to read who then cannot get jobs. Well, it turns out that magically just kind of teaching people to be literate doesn't make everybody successful. It's actually you're creating a skills base that ends up on a kind of probably something like a bell curved. If you look at grades on a bell curved, uh, you know, range and people above a certain level of competence have developed the skill highly enough to where they're probably going to be able to apply it and get somewhere. And people who have not C students and below probably will not. And, or maybe it's D students and below, depending on how cynical you are about this. What he's doing is saying, well, look at these worst people who are not succeeding. So the education system is failing everybody. It doesn't actually work because it doesn't work for everybody. It doesn't work at all. And this, of course, is exactly the model, the model behind equity. This is the model of uh, that where you're going to pander and appeal to the lowest because it's assumed that the highest will take care of themselves. It's that same assumption that the privileged are automatically good to go. And so to read this, to give you, I mean, again, I'm not making this up. He says, our concept of illiteracy is naive at best. So now we're really also going to blow up the concept of illiteracy because we're talking about adult literacy. So obviously it's a Marxist thing. So literacy is going have, have, have to have a different meaning. Um, he says, our concept of illiteracy is naive at best when we compare it on the one hand to a poison herb, as implied in the current expression, eradication of illiteracy and on the other, to a disease that's contagious and transmitted to others. Again, sometimes we see it as a depressing ulcer that should be cured. So what he's saying is, you know, there are different ways of thinking about illiteracy. You can think of it as a disease that you have to cure, so you're going to come in and teach people to read to cure the disease. You can think of it as a uh, poison herb. In other words, some kind of a noxious plant that you're going to go and pull out of the garden. And so you're going to, you know, weed the garden and get rid of it. And so the illiterate are, uh, being illiterate is like having poisoned herbs. So we're going to go in and we're going to teach people to get those poison herbs out of the situation. And he's saying this is naive. Uh, and maybe that's what was going on in Brazil when he was writing these things. I don't know. Um, he says again, oh, sorry, that's the ulcer part. Um, 
Its indices, he says, statistically compiled by international organizations distort the level of civilization of certain societies. And civilization is in quotes. So now what he's also saying is people are gauging, you know, what's the literacy rate in the United States? What's the literacy rate in Britain? What's the literacy rate in Brazil? And they're like, well, it's a lot higher in the US and UK, a lot lower in Brazil. So Brazil is a less civilized society. So it's calling into question what it means for a society to have attained the status of civilization. Um, kind of a typical Marxist, oh, you're othering us because you're we're not adopting, you know, successful uh, white Western Eurocentric values like being able to read. And again, apply this to your children. Moreover, let me pause. Apply this to your children and then look at culturally responsive education. It's less important that they learn to read, more important that they learn the cultural context. How dare you say that this different cultural context isn't as educated as the one that's rooted in a white Eurocentric context? Reproduction, exactly. So, sorry. Moreover, from this ingenuous or astute perspective, illiteracy can also appear as a manifestation of people's incapacity, their lack of intelligence, or their proverbial laziness. We've heard this packaged up in other ways. Don't even have to comment on it. Just to say, he's saying that illiteracy is kind of held up in these various ways as a measure of the civilization level of a society, as a disease that needs to be cured because it will help things out. If it does, as a poison herb that needs to be pulled up because it's bad for the society, or as a result of some form of inadequacy, whether that's not being capable enough, not being smart enough, or too lazy. To, to go forward. And he says, no, this is a naive way to view illiteracy. We have to understand literacy differently. And that, of course, is going to go all the way to the moon. It's going to go plaid, as they say in space balls. He says, when educators limit their understanding of this complex issue, which they may not appreciate or wish to appreciate, so there's your willful ignorance, they don't know and they don't want to know, their solutions are always of a mechanical character. Literacy, as such, is reduced to the mechanical act of depositing, in scare quotes, depositing words, syllables, and letters into illiterates. This deposit is sufficient as soon as the illiterate student attaches a magical meaning to the word and thus affirms himself or herself. So, okay, he says we have this naive understanding of illiteracy. It's not a very good one. I already said what it was about. And so people don't understand what's really going on. Educators don't. And in fact, they don't want to. They just want to come in and teach mechanical solutions. They just want to teach people phonics and letters so that they can read a word on a page, reproduce that word by saying it, see the word on the page, say it out loud, and connect magically, he says, magical meaning to the word, which that affirms him as a reader or as literate. He says, written or read, words are, as it were, amulets placed on a person who doesn't say them, but merely repeats them, almost always without any relation to the world and the things they name. You understand why I have to spend so much time with this? This is crazy and deep at the same time. So he says, if you just learn to read, you basically just memorized. I see this word. I make this sound. I don't even have to know what it means. And in fact, I don't know what it means in the deeper sense of what it really implies about society. So I might say the word inequality and not really connect to what inequality feels like. Or I might say the word rich and not realize that it implies poor by relative privation. 
Literacy, he says, becomes the result of an act by a so-called educator who, quote, fills the illiterate learner with words. This magical sense given to words extends to another ingenuity, that of the Messiah. The illiterate is a lost man, therefore one must save him, and his salvation consists of being filled with these words. Mere miraculous sounds offered or imposed on him by the teacher, who is often an unconscious agent of the political policies inherent in the literacy campaign. Holy crap! Iron Law of Woke Projection on fire. This is such a big deal. Because what he's actually, nobody thinks about education this way. You understand that there, like if you were going to teach somebody to read, what you would understand is there are, say, signs and documents in the world that contain words written on them as a means of communicating important ideas and concepts to people. For example, a contract or a sign that says, you know, this is where you can get your your bananas or whatever it happens to be. And if you want people to be able to receive that communication, they have to be able to read the word, the written word on the thing, understand its meaning, create the recognition of that meaning in their mind, and then act upon what it actually says. With contracts and things, it becomes very important because people could be very easily fooled by not understanding the thing that they've agreed to if it's in writing and they don't understand it. Okay, so your goal is to teach the people to understand the words and the sentences that they are embedded in so that they can create the meaning so that they understand the thing that's being communicated. That's the way we really see literacy. That's what real literacy really is. But he's saying it's something different. He's saying that what's actually being taught is a magical process where people learn these words and they're mere amulets. The meaning is actually abstract and actually just reproduces the existing society. They don't know the deeper meaning. And so this becomes... A act where you're filling people with these words and sounds, but it doesn't mean anything because it's all magical. And this is really important because ultimately, if you if you understand anything about Marxism and Marxist theory in general, is it's all freaking magic spells. It's all linguistic manipulations and distortions that cast a magic spell over people that get them to go along with some nonsense like this book. And so that's how he's he's telling you this is how we think of literacy as Marxists, is that you are imbuing people with a magical sense of what the words mean, and then we can create that in reality. That's literally the Marxian theology. You're a subject, what you can create as an image in your mind and then bring into existence in the world and thus see yourself in, that's the core of the Marxist theology, is the nature of reality and that which reveals your true nature to you. That's a magic spell. So if we can give you a bunch of theory and you can envision the Marxist world in your head and you can try to create that in the world through going out and telling people about it, through convincing them that the world is actually structural, etc., the relation of the world and the things they name, then you can actually get people to change and transform the world in accordance with Marxism. So this is Iron Law of Woke Projection, but then it gets a lot worse because it goes straight to this. This is Freire's conception of what, again, People will critique me for saying this, but it's true. This is through Iron Law of Oak Projection. He compares the magical sense of words, which I say belongs to Marxism and not at all to reality, extends to another ingenuity, that of the Messiah. And so the educator, meaning the Marxist educator, if we look at, look at this through the Iron Law of Oak Projection, sees the illiterate as the Marxist illiterate. And we're going to hear how he changes the meaning of literacy in this in a minute, is the lost man who must be saved, and his salvation consists of being filled with 
Marxist theory. Mere miraculous sounds offered or imposed on him by the teacher. And the only difference here is that he says, who is often an unconscious agent of the political policies inherent in the literacy campaign. And with Marxism, this is the, this is another key point of Marxism. All we have to do is remove those two letters, UN, UN, offered and imposed on him by the teacher who is a conscious agent of the political policies inherent in the literacy campaign. So here's the Marxist thing. This is the simplest summary of Marxism in the entire world. Man creates a society, society through its relationships, relations, I should say, creates history. History is kind of the trajectory of society as man is creating it. And he's doing so unconsciously up until the point where Marx comes on the scene. Marx introduces a conscious element to the direction of society so that no longer is man making society blindly, like a blind watchmaker if we're Richard Dawkins. No longer is man making society blindly and thus making himself through social conditioning blindly. We now have people who understand the theory correctly, Gnostics, who are going to direct its course once they seize the means of power and production. Marxists. So we're going to leave unconscious direction of society, which makes man, and enter into conscious production of society, which makes man. This is Marxism at its heart. And so if you read this as Iron Love Woke Projection, this Messiah business as I do, Marxists see themselves as the Messiah who's coming in, conscious of the way to direct society, and offers people miraculous sounds which is th words that create theory, offered or imposed upon students by the teacher who is a conscious agent of the political policies inherent in their literacy campaign. Iron Law Woke Projection is big time happening here. And I think it's key to understanding what Freire is saying. He's, anything these people accuse the existing system of being is what they're actually doing, because what they're doing is telling you exactly how they think about the subject, which they're blatantly getting very wrong. So like I said, normal educators teach skills, especially the basic levels. Those skills are connected to actual functions in reality, like being able to read the words on a contract and not get fooled, read the words on a sign and go the right way, whatever it happens to be. Maybe there are some people out there who become educators, especially in adult education, who have savior complexes. Maybe it's at a higher rate than baseline. Maybe not. I don't know. But this is confession by projection to say that that's what education is actually about when not being done by Marxists. But it's the opposite when it's Marxists, according to Freire, which is straight up Iron Law Vogue projection. And so they see themselves as messiahs. And I don't have to riff just off of this. The whole of Marxism, as I was kind of already articulating with this conscious direction of society, is already a messianic delusion. Marx believed man and society continually make one another, so those who adopt Marxist consciousness gain control over the feedback loop and can seize the means of production. You might notice, by the way, this makes Marxism inherently eugenicist. The conscious Gnostic people are going to direct the course of society and the man that it creates in its dialectical relationship between man and society. So they are going to direct the future course of man consciously rather than through uh, kind of the natural processes of people getting together and developing ideas and sharing ideas and mating and marrying and doing those things. No, they're now going to control it. So Marxism is inherently, at least culturally, eugenicist because it is going to direct the, the program of culture. But they believe that the society that you have makes the man within it 
in a relationship where that man then makes the next iteration of society that makes the next iteration of man. And so by changing the course of society to be more and more socialist, they change the nature of man to be more and more socialist. And so it's inherently eugenicist, so which when it doesn't work, they have to kill people by the millions because it's inherently a eugenics project. It is the people who know how to direct the evolution of society and mankind take control over directing the, gener- the, the, the direction of society and mankind. That's eugenics. Marxists are always eugenicists for this reason, period. But not to put too fine a point on that, uh, George Lukács, who I also read quite a lot and I think is actually quite clear, it gives, it gives us another example of this messianic delusion at the heart of Marxism. They're, again, they're saving mankind. Remember Marcuse, before I go to Lukács, said that we have two options for the course of society through capitalism. One is that it will become socialist, it will liberate itself, and the other is fascism and the total calamity. It's a messianic delusion. They are positioning themselves as the saviors of humanity from itself by taking conscious control of its evolution and direction, and thus the people that it will produce down to, as Marcuse has a biological foundation for socialism. In other words, changing people at the biological level so that their vital needs reflect being socialist, inherently eugenic a eugenicist, but also inherently a messianic delusion. They are the saviors of mankind from mankind itself. But to turn back to Lukács, in, in, he wrote a book in 1923 called History and Class Consciousness. The, I, I have a copy of this. It happens to be a copy that was reprinted much later, and it has a preface that Lukács himself wrote in 1967, much later, looking back at his own work, whatever, 44 years later. And in that preface, he describes, he, he's actually criticizing his own work. He's saying that it's not perfect, that he went too far with certain things and he had certain things wrong. It's one of the better, it's a difficult read, but it's a very good exposition of the religion, religious aspect of Marxism. Like Freire, I believe Lukács actually got it as far as the theology Marx was expounding upon. And But what he says, just to draw this to a, this messianic delusion thing to a close, is that um, what he actually says is that his theory that he wrote in 1923 in History and Class Consciousness is based in, quote, his own messianic utopian aspirations. He saw himself as a, as a messiah figure who had aspirations to build a utopia, a kingdom of God here on earth, using Marxian theory. And he saw his own theory as messianic in nature. Society is in a position of calamity. The clear and present danger, as Marcuse has it, is, this estate we, is the state we permanently live in, and it can be rescued only by taking us in the direction of socialism. So the socialist man becomes, as a collective, becomes a becomes the Messiah. The class, as Lukács says, the only way you can understand man is in terms of the total, the right total at the level of a divided, stratified society is the class. And so the lower class, the proletariat class, the awakened class becomes the Messiah that is going to usher us into, through a dictatorship with the proletariat, usher us into a new world where we are saved from ourselves. So then when we reread this from Freire, it's going to hit hard. This is his education theory. The magical sense given to words extends to another ingenuity, that of the Messiah. The illiterate is a lost man, therefore one must save him, and his salvation consists of being filled with these words, mere miraculous sounds offered or imposed on him by the teacher, who is often an unconscious agent of the political policies inherent in the literacy campaign. Imagine if instead you had the teacher being a conscious agent 
seizing the means of the literacy campaign and directing its politics. Imagine if. That would be very messianic. And that's what's going on. It seems kind of small and unimportant and like I'm making a lot of hay out of something, but it really caught my attention. Freire is setting up a ton of his educational philosophy here. Freire's project is liberatory education. That's really what he calls it. So Marxist educators are seeing themselves as messianic figures, as messiahs, trying to turn students into the agents that are going to bring this messianic vision these messianic aspirations. It's a messianic cult, and they are inducing students into their messianic cult. So education, in the Freirean sense, is not to be about educating or teaching skills, but rather about raising this religious consciousness, that conscious agent of the political policies to be made inherent into the literacy campaign. That's big. If you don't understand that that's what Freirean education is about, If you don't understand how that ties back to Marxism, you don't understand what you're reading when you read this book or all of education that's come out of this book, which is virtually all of it. All of the education today is based on this. So here's what Freire has to say, by contrast, about skills learning based textbooks. He says, from a methodological or sociological point of view, primers developed mechanistically, like any other texts, cannot escape a type of original sin, however good they might be since they are instruments for depositing the education the educator's words into the stu- into the learners and since they limit the power of expression and creativity they are domesticating instruments now again the same thing we see the same thing first of all the iron law of oak projection they are blatantly using tools like social and emotional learning to deposit their answers to social and emotional questions into the people that they are psychologically abusing under those programs. That's what transformative SEL is about. They are blatantly doing this. So again, the projection, right? Notice the reference though. There's a type of original sin involved here, which is that if we just approach the skills-based learning mechanistically, as he says, there's an original sin they can't escape, which is that we are going to take what the educator or the textbook writer thinks and deposit that into the students or to the learners so that they reproduce it. What does that do? Very Marxist religion. It limits the power of expression and creativity and thus acts as a domesticating instrument. In other words, it limits the range of their subjectivity so that they cannot so that they become alienated from their own learning in exactly the Marxist sense. Their educational work becomes domesticating, it becomes limiting of subjectivity rather than expanding the range of subjectivity. This is so important to understand that this is what they're doing. So this is what they accuse education of doing, and then they say they have the antidote to this, but the antidote is to actually do that with their theory, which they believe is the only escape from that. Generally speaking, he says, these texts and primers are developed according to mechanical and magical messianic concepts of word deposit and word sound. I think that means learning to read and phonics, but I'm not entirely sure. Their ultimate objective is to to achieve a transfusion in which the educator is the blood of salvation for the diseased illiterate. Moreover, When the words from which a text is developed coincide with the existential reality of illiterate learners, and this rarely occurs, they are presented as cliches. The words are never created by the ones who should have written them. Most often, these words and texts have nothing to do with the actual experience of illiterate learners. 
So now we're going to let me pause because we're about to shift into you're going to hear where the cultural response of education comes from. Um, but this set of metaphors is pretty intense. The, he's trying to characterize actually just teaching people to freaking read or we could say do math or whatever as magical messianic as a magical messianic approach where if we just deposit the knowledge as the enlightened teacher, then the students will become successful. And Therefore, we gave them a transfusion of the blood of salvation for the diseased illiterate. Of course, this is exactly what they want to do, is they want to give a transfusion of the critical consciousness, because they be- this is how they view education. Oh, we're just transfusing. We're depositing something into their minds, and then that allows them to do X, Y, or Z. And if it's reproducing the, con- the, the current society, that's bad. And if it's a critical consciousness, that's good. There is absolutely no understanding of actual learning. This is a serious delusional approach. So their ultimate objective is to achieve a transfusion of the blood of salvation into the diseased illiterate. And I'm telling you, he's going to change what the word illiterate means. We're going to understand that soon. Okay. And so that's one thing. Now we're going to shift a little bit in this. I started the sentence. Most of these, most often these words and texts have nothing to do with the actual experience of illiterate learners. So this is another huge Freirean point. This is going to be so important within the culturally responsive education movement. It's also going to be where you basically have these student-led classrooms and all of this other these other initiatives that seem so strange. Why on earth would we we be empowering the children as 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 the educator basically who teaches the teacher? I learned so much from my students. I learned more than I can teach them. Where does this come from? Now, here we go. The Freirean point is that the context in which the oppressed are must inform the educator, and the oppressed must therefore teach the educator what they want to learn. Sound familiar in today's education? So the culturally diverse students have to teach the educator how to be how the teachers how to be culturally responsive and then the lessons will be made culturally responsive in regard to that context that's Freyerian education that's also culturally responsive education there you go he says when there is some relationship between the words and the learner's experience its expression is so contrived and paternalistic that we don't even dare call it infantile so he's saying that in the rare cases where you actually touch upon something of political relevance to the students they make it into something fake they they make it into a caricature or a pastiche or whatever so that the students won't recognize it because they're literally a paranoid delusion. This way of handling illiterates implies a distorted opinion. It is as if illiterates were totally different from everyone else. So we invoke the power dynamic thing. This distortion fails to acknowledge their real life experience and all the past and ongoing knowledge acquired through their experience. As a passive, as quote, sorry, as passive and docile beings, since this is how they are viewed and treated, <laughs> Iron Law Vogue Projection never misses, illiterate learners must continue to receive, quote, transfusions. This is, of course, an alienating experience and capable of contributing to the process of transformation of reality. Now we're starting to see that the word illiterate means something different here. He's going to mean, and we'll get to this, he's going to mean Illiterate doesn't mean unable to read. It means unable to read society as a Marxist. It means politically illiterate as a Marxist. It means illiterate to Marxist theory, illiterate of the critical consciousness. And when you shift and understand that he means that by illiterate, but is using the reality of actual illiteracy, by the way, all children are illiterate until they learn to read, uh, and most of our high school graduates remain illiterate today, 
when when you when he, he he's projecting political illiteracy into the idea of actual illiteracy and it really makes a lot more sense when you realize that he's got a double meaning to the word literate or illiterate here uh, and it's illiterate of the political context versus actually cannot read and so his goal is to raise literate political literacy meaning marxist consciousness not uh, with the assumption that physical or real competence in reading actual literacy will just kind of come along for the ride or isn't maybe even that relevant because what is really relevant here is figuring out how to chance transform the world and that requires literacy the right kind of literacy, which means Marxist political literacy. He says, what positive view can peasants or urban workers gain for their role in the world? How can they critically understand their concrete oppressive situation through literacy work in which they are instructed with sweetness to learn phrases like the wing of the bird or Eva saw the grape? By relying on words that transmit an ideology of accommodation, such literacy work reinforces the, quote, culture of silence that dominates most people. This kind of literacy can never be an instrument for transforming the real world. Okay, so regular literacy, learning how to actually read, this is where it switches, can't transform the world. It, in fact, creates and maintains a culture of silence. What does that mean? Well, if you don't, how are you silenced? Maybe you don't have the words. You don't have the vocabulary to express your ideas. Maybe you can't write them down. Maybe you can't pronounce them. Maybe you can't read them if somebody else puts them down. These are forms of kind of illiteracy. Or maybe you don't understand the political context. The only kind of literacy that can transform the world is naming, for, for Marxists, is naming oppression and having the political consciousness. That's what he means by the type of literacy that can be an instrument for transforming the real world. Actually learning the mechanics of reading because it teaches you silly things like the wing of the bird or Eva saw the grape, can't possibly do it. So we're going to teach the politics, and the skills don't really matter, because the skills in and of themselves can't solve the problem. They can't transform the world. So he's explaining more or less why skills-based education fails according to Marxism. He says, and this is where I was referring to earlier, consider ex-illiterates who were trained by reading texts without, of course, they're analyzing what is involved in the social context and who can read, even though they do so mechanically. When looking for work or better jobs, they can't find them. They at least understand the fallacy and the impossibility of such a promise. So this is a person, there is a term for this, it's called functional illiteracy. You can read the words, but you don't really understand them, so you can't really do much with them. And when I was teaching 15 years ago, it was stated that the incoming freshman college, freshman uh, functional illiteracy rate was maybe as high as 50% looking at the way their tests went. So if you give them what that meant as an instructor was, if I gave you a list of instructions for an assignment, you certainly could sit there and sound out and read every single word on the page, but you couldn't actually translate the meaning of what you've read into what the instructions are conveying. In other words, you can, you can this is what Freire's criticizing, is that you can create functional illiterates who are technically literate. And he's using this as a wedge to say what you need is actual political literacy, which is a different thing entirely. He's the only kind he considers legitimate. Okay, so this is a little trick. You can functionally read, but not actually be able to connect meaning to the words that you read in an efficient or effective manner. So he's describing this. So this are people who can read, even though they do so mechanically. And when those people to go to use their literacy skills to get jobs, they're not there because they can't actually read. 
But that's just the next level skill in teaching to read. You learn to sound things out. You learn to identify words. You learn to connect them. And then you start digging in deeper and connecting them to their meaning. But this doesn't require connecting them to their political context. Notice he skipped and said that's what it's really about. So he says, Critical, critically speaking, illiteracy is neither an ulcer nor a poison herb to be eradicated, nor a disease. Illiteracy is one of the concrete expressions of an unjust social reality. Of course it is. Illiteracy is not a strictly linguistic or exclusively pedagogical or methodological problem. It is political, as is the very literacy through which we try to overcome illiteracy. Dwelling naively or astutely on intelligence does not affect in the least the intrinsic politics. And so he's making the switch now from, we've got kind of multiple concepts on the table. There's, there's being able to functionally read. So being basic, well, I'll use the phrasing, there's probably a real term for it, but I don't know it. Basic literacy, then there's functional literacy, and he's using political literacy. And he's saying people who have basic literacy but are not functionally literate would be better off if they were politically literate. And so critically speaking, you, functional literacy is not the point. Political literacy is. But in reality, in reality, you can see this is where they, they pull their little off-ramp and trick people. Basic literacy should lead to functional literacy with more practice and more instruction, not to political literacy, where you've now programmed them to think in a particular way. And then he's saying, well, the people who don't, who can't succeed are being accused of being lazy or stupid or whatever, or they've got some kind of a disease or something like this. And that's a bad way to think about it because what we're failing to do, instead of saying that we're failing to create functional literacy, he's saying we're failing to create political literacy. He says, accordingly, the critical view of literacy does not include the mere mechanical repetition of pa, pe, pi, po, pu, and la, le, li, lo, lu to produce pula, pelo, lali, pulo, lapa, la, pela, Pilula, and so on. Again, it's Portuguese, and I don't know if I pronounced any of those right, so you have to live with it. Rather, it develops students' consciousness of their rights, along with their critical presence in the real world. Literacy and their critical perspective. Literacy in this perspective, meaning critical, and not that of dominant classes, establishes itself as a process of search and creation by which literate learners are challenged to perceive the deeper meaning of language in the word, the word that, in essence, they are being denied. This is going to get real theological real fast. To deny the word implies something more. So before we go into that, let's just break this down. He's saying that if you aren't giving people the political resonance of their experience through words, then you're actually denying them their ability to use words to do anything functional. Again, this is a distortion between functional literacy and uh, political literacy. And he's shifted into the political literacy frame quite invisibly, unless you know what you're looking for very carefully. And he says, mechanical basic literacy practices like learning syllables and phonics cannot get you to functional literacy. I would argue that in reality, you cannot get functional literacy without having basic literacy. It's a building block toward being able to comprehend what you're reading. But he's saying that that's actually skills-based acquisition is just a waste of time. If we just taught the political context, we'd be doing the thing that's really useful. That's real literacy. So now real literacy has nothing to do with phonics or being able to read or being able to connect words in, in writing and that are written form. It means understanding the context that you're in. And like I said, this is about to get really theological. And I want you to actually go into the context of the first book of John, John chapter one, I should say, not the first book of John, uh, the gospel of John chapter one where it starts off talking about the word and the word was with God and the word was God, da, da, da. To deny the word, he says, implies something more. It implies the denial of the right to proclaim the world. 
Thus, to say a word does not mean merely re- merely repeating any word. Indeed, such repetition constitutes one of the sophisms of reactionary literary practice. Learning to read and write cannot be done as something parallel or nearly parallel to the illiterate's reality. Hence, as we have said, the learning process demands an understanding of the deeper meaning of the word. Why? Because when you have the word, you can proclaim the world. This is a Marxist reinvention of John 1. John chapter 1. This is a Marxist reinvention. Their vision is that if you create political literacy, then people have the word, and with the word, they can proclaim the world. This is going to be a major theme in Freire, is the the denouncing of the existing world and the proclaiming of the new one, as we get into the later chapters in this book. And he says, if you aren't teaching political literacy, you cannot proclaim the world through your words. So basic and even functional literacy are irrelevant because you cannot denounce the existing world and proclaim the new world without it. And I'm not kidding. He says his entire project is one of denouncing and proclaiming. Denouncing and announcing. You denounce the existing world and announce the new one. That's the point of the word. This is very, very religious. This is for uh, Freire, the point of education. Just want to kind of put that uh, very clearly. He says, what should be contrasted with practice is not theory, which is inseparable from it, but the nonsense sounds of imitative thinking. For me, I see myself, this is him speaking for himself, for me, I see myself between both groups, among those who won't accept the impossible division between practice and theory, since all educational practice implies an educational theory. All educational practice implies an educational theory. So again, the central tenet of Marxist praxis, which is really the application of Marxist belief, is showing up here. There's already a theory out there. History is already being made. There's already a social structure. So it would be best if the conscious Marxist theoreticians, the dialectical thinkers, took control of that process and guided it. Conscious over unconscious. Gnostic over agnostic. They are positioning themselves as the Gnostic messiahs of society who are going to be able to lead us into the utopia by getting people to be able to understand the political relevance of the words that they are using and seeing so they can name their experience. Naming oppression makes it visible. That's the doctrine. And then by denouncing the oppression in the with control of the world, they can then words, they can then proclaim or announce the world as it's changing through the revolution. That's the religion. That's Freire's whole program. We're only in the second chapter of this book. I'm telling you, this book is mind-blowing. So the effect of this Gnostic approach is that you're never really wrong, or as a side effect, I should say, of this Gnostic approach is that you're never really wrong. And this is what Freire's kind of saying here. You're always part of the process. So the conscious are the people who are going to guide everything. Those are Marxists. They attain a guru status where they're never quite wrong. What suffers as a result is just literally everything else. And this is where he he says this. And and the guru process is always clothed in false humility. He says, quote, the theoretical foundations of my practice are explained in the actual process, not as a fait accompli, but as a dynamic movement in which both theory and practice make and remake themselves. If you haven't followed up to this point how Marxist and Hegelian this is, with the idea that theory and practice were only separated by the... um, 
by the division of labor for Marx, for example, and that they can only be put back together by erasing that division of labor, the original sin that cast us out of the garden. And so that the point of the entire process is to bring theory and practice back together, which is Marx's re reflection, I should say, of Hegel's idea that the theoretical idea and practical idea have been separated falsely through um, through the processes of, of, of mankind kind of thinking that thinking and action are separate from one another, or the absolute creating its abject other, it being theoretical and uh, practical in its two domains. And those the, the, the absolute actually comes back into full being, its realization of deity and perfected when the theoretical idea and the practical idea synthesize back into the absolute idea where theory and practice are not separate from one another. So here's Freire again. The theoretical foundations of my practice are explained in the actual process, not as a fait accompli, but as a dynamic movement in which both theory and practice make and remake themselves. Many things that today still appear to me as valid, not only in actual or future practice, but also in any theoretical interpretation that I might derive from it, could be outgrown tomorrow, not just by me, but by others as well, so they can never be wrong. The crux here, I believe, is that I must be constantly open to criticism and sustain my curiosity, always ready for revision based on the results of my future experience and that of others. And in turn, those who put my experience into practice must strive to recreate it and also rethink my thinking. In so doing, they should bear in mind that no educational practice takes place in a vacuum, only in a real context, historical, economic, political, and not necessarily identical to any other context. So notice again, the guru is clothed in false humility, roughly. He can't be wrong. But he says, he's basically saying, I could be wrong, but if it is, it's because I'm actually more right, because I have the right method. And everything's so complicated, we're just understanding the context better. And the context changes from place to place to place, and we're all learning this together. And so what the, what the Marxist is holding up is not that they know all the answers, but that they have the unique process for getting the right answers. And every calamity that they have was that they create around them, every failure to teach kids to read or write or do math or any of these other things... Every million people they accidentally starve in the Holodomor, for example, that's all them just figuring out, oh my gosh, the context wasn't quite what we thought. We have the right method, though, and the method, the dialectic, is the one thing that's never abandoned. Every theoretical construct is able to be abandoned or modified. Deconstruction, postmodern deconstruction would say that race is a social construct, so there is no race. That can be completely abandoned or really Alfhaven, it can be uh, Alfgehoven, it can actually be remade uh, through the dialectical process into races imposed. So even though it's a social construct, it's still socially determinant or structurally determinant by Kimberly Crenshaw and mapping the margins. Every concept can be thrown out, but the method itself is invincible. And the guru is in charge of the method. Everything he says could be wrong, literally everything. And I put into practice, it could all go wrong. But that's just the method revealing more of the contradictions that we weren't that weren't visible before. And the people who are in control of the dialectical method are the people who are then going to be able to identify that and name it so that they can then attempt again later. So this is why real communism has never been tried, is because real communism only emerges when that's already settled, where you're no longer having to expose contradictions that you uh, haven't realized yet. But it's the people with the method who become the gurus, and the gurus clothe themselves, critical gurus, critical theorists, critical Marxists, clothe themselves in false humility. I could be wrong. We're constantly critiquing. We critique our own theory. What they never critique is the dialectical method. 
They never critique the operating system of their entire platform, which is garbage. They never critique that. Everything else is up for grabs. But when things go bad, you don't say, wow, you were wrong. We're out. We're not listening to you anymore. You're supposed to say, wow, look what you've exposed, genius guru. Now you understand even more deeply. Let's get in even more deeply into your beliefs. The method is always preserved. So he goes on, he says, This effort toward understanding, required of me and others, again highlights the unity between practice and theory. But understanding the relationship between practice and theory and education also requires seeing the connection between social theory and practice in a given society. So let me, this, this practice theory thing, this is a dialectical relationship. Practice and theory are held in opposition or intention, one another, dialectic. They create one another. What does that mean? means you have some theoretical idea about how education should work. It's probably totally wrong. You put it into practice. A disaster occurs, and then you use that to update your theory. Um, and the old kind of model, the pre-Copernican model, where the sun was not seen as at the center of the solar system, but the earth was, this is looking out, finding, you try to apply this thing. You figure out that you don't get right answers. Things go badly, and then you draw epicycles on your orbits so that you can try to force the existing theory to keep working. That's what the dialectical relationship between practice and theory actually is. These people are Gnostics. They believe they have figured out the one true way to understand reality, and that if they are put in control of unfolding it by taking their ideas, putting them into practice, and scooping up the failures and using those to update the theory to put into practice again, again and again and again, not in the way where you're learning from your mistakes, but rather where you're just creating greater and greater rationalizations and excuses for your mistakes so that you can keep applying the broken theory in the first place. That's what these people are. So when they talk about the unity of practice and theory, what they actually mean is that if you just force this long enough, it'll start working. But no, it will not. It will not. And so he goes on and says, a theory that is supposed to inform the general experience of the dominant classes, of which educational practice is a dimension, can't be the same as one that lends support to the re-justification of the dominant classes in their practice. Thus, educational practice is its theory, uh, so sorry, and, sorry. Thus, educational practice and its theory cannot be neutral. The relationship between practice and theory and an education oriented toward liberation is one thing, but quite another in education for the purpose of domestication. So what he's saying is there's always a theory in play, that theory is always being put into practice. The dominant classes use it to create domestication, to maintain their dominance, and then the liberatory approach does the opposite. So if you're saying, wow, this recreates exactly the same argument as repressive tolerance from Herbert Marcuse, where he says that movements from the left must be tolerated and movements from the right must not be tolerated. Left violence must be tolerated. Right violence must be stopped before it can even be thought of to the degree of censorship and pre-censorship. Thus, we create a liberating tolerance. Here we have a liberating education. If you see those parallels, it's because they both come from the same root, which is Marxist theory. Marxists are always right. That's the true left. So left is always right. That's the true liberation. So the liberatory people are always right. The dialectical thinkers are always right. And everybody else is always wrong. So he's saying, basically, you have, again, another false choice. Two possible choices. You have education that's designed to recreate the existing society and domesticate people to it. Or you have the kind that will liberate people from it 
Thus, there is no neutral. There are only those two choices. There is no middle ground. You're either reproducing the system of oppression or you're fighting against it. This is that same false dichotomy at the heart of Marx's class antagonism that's supposed to awaken the proletarian uh, consciousness. He says, for example, dominant classes don't need to worry about the unity between practice and theory when they defer, to mention only one example, to so-called skills, uh, to so-called skilled labor, because here the theory is referred to as a neutral, sorry, here the theory is referred to is a neutral theory of a neutral technique. So you see the absolute recreation of the same Marxist dichotomy that became in terms of how tolerance was going to be reinterpreted repressive tolerance under Marcuse, and here it's when education is going to be interpreted, you're either taking the Marxist liberatory path or you are recreating um, you're recreating the dominant system and domesticating people into it through education. And he says that the example that he wants to raise is skilled-based labor. In other words, merit, meritocracy, because the theory referred to is regarded in scare quotes as a neutral theory of a neutral technique. And he says that that's reproducing the dominant structure and said you need this liberatory thing. So he then goes on to explain a key point in his educational philosophy, which is critical pedagogy. Lessons must be geared to the context of the learner in order for them to be truly educational because you have to awaken political literacy. That means they have to uncover the learner's oppression in life, which is his context. If they are illiterate, one way or another, especially. This means the teacher has to learn that context from the student, thus inverting the dynamic between teacher and student, to generate a learner-led classroom, which is particularly poignant in the context of dealing with what we're seeing with children. But that's also going to be in culturally responsive teaching that you have to have the students in the different cultural contexts constantly informing the the teachers of what their cultural context is like, and you see the birthplace of culturally responsive teaching. Literacy, Freire is explaining, cannot be effectively taught in the abstract. You can't use phonics. You can't teach people to identify words because that just deposits, deposits stuff into their heads and reproduces the existing society. Instead, it has to be taught from generative terms. That's his term for it, quote, generative terms that are relevant to the lives of the learners, which means their lived realities of the lived experience of oppression. Otherwise, the students will be bored and they'll daydream and they won't be engaged. So that's the rationalization or justification for why you do political education is to keep their interest. Exactly like what we hear in culturally responsive teaching. If you're not culturally responsive, you lose certain learners because they don't want to engage with the material because they find it alienating and it doesn't resonate with them. So it must be culturally responsive. The whole fraudulent cultural competence, culturally responsive teaching program reproduces this idiocy. Of course, it also redirects educational resources like class time to discussing contexts all the time. So whining about oppression, grooming narcissism, just straight up sexual grooming, etc. And a lot of what's happening is done under the brand name of social emotional learning to do this. Social emotional learning is let's talk about the context. Let's talk about the social context you find yourself in. What are the emotional challenges you're having? Let's induce vulnerability and then give you correct answers to the, to the questions of that. Let's do this in math class because that consciousness raising is more important than skills-based learning because skills-based learning reproduces meritocracy and skills-based learning reproducing meritocracy through the deposition of ideas from the existing society into the head reproduces the existing society and does not allow for a Marxist revolution to come about from those you are uh, 
the word would be educating, but it's actually programming with Marxism. So this is the Freirean education model, and you can already hear how it connects to the things you are experiencing with your children in schools today. So to elaborate with cultural competence and the magic of constructing reality through the so-called true speech being now blatantly obvious, he says, in a critical approach, it is most important to select generative words, in other words, culturally relevant words, in relation to language levels, including the pragmatic. Further, these words cannot be selected according to purely phonetic criteria. So remember, we're teaching adults who can't read, peasants, how to read. And he says, you can't select the words according to phonics or some phonetic program. They have to be generative words. And the word he actually gives an example of somewhere later is struggle. You don't teach them, you know, with the example of the grape and uva, I think the word in, in Portuguese for grape is uva, so, you know, something uva, something eva, and you play these little cute games with syllables to get people to understand. It's a phonics thing. Now, you can't do that, he says. He explicitly says you cannot teach through phonics. You don't select teaching words through phonics. You teach through political relevance. He says a word can have a special force in one area, for instance, and not in others. This variation in meaning can occur even within the same city. So there's your cultural competence, and you have to constantly ask the exact students you're teaching. You know, different neighborhood, different barrio, different whatever it happens to be, different hood. You got to have different cultural competency. You got to have culturally relevant in a different way, because the variation in meaning can occur even within the same city. And the point is to bring up generative concepts or generative words rather than skills based learning like phonics, if you're teaching reading. He says to problematize the word that comes from people means to problematize the thematic element to which it refers. This necessarily involves an analysis of reality. And reality, it's, and reality reveals itself when we go beyond purely sensible knowledge to the reasons behind the factors. Illiterate learners gradually begin to appreciate that, as human beings, to speak is not the same as to utter a word. So again, the religious context of speaking having creative capacity. To speak is not the same as to utter a word or to say. To speak is not the same as to say. Because to speak is how you proclaim the world, as he said. Okay, and so you're going to you're going to bring up concepts that have political relevance to them so they can learn to speak the world that they want to denounce and then to create. That's the Marxist program here. So they see themselves as an oppressed subject. That's where true subjectivity lies. It's in your understanding of the oppression that you're complicit in, whether you are um, oppressed or whether you are complicit in creating that oppression. You learn to speak into that. That's the point of education because then you can denounce the existing world and announce the new world that you're trying to create through the revolutionary process of education. And that's critical pedagogy. Speaking on illiteracy as a form of oppression, Freire tells us here, it is essential to see that illiteracy is not in itself the original obstacle. It's the result of an earlier hindrance and later becomes an obstacle. No one elects to be illiterate. One is illiterate because of objective conditions, you know, maybe like being four. In certain circumstances, the illiterate man is the man who does not need to read. In other circumstances, he is the one to whom the right to read was denied. In either case, there was no choice. So he's saying that the society is making people illiterate. It is not, in fact, the person and anything to do with them uh, that's the reason for their illiteracy. 
the society made them illiterate. Kind of funny when we go back to being a four-year-old. He's, of course, talking about adult literacy and peasants, but this got transferred over the same way, and the mentality applies in the same way. There, people are disabled by society not accommodating them rather than that they are disabled by having whatever disability. That is the social model of disability that was adopted in 1980 within disability studies where it took its woke turn. So this same mentality, this the society's fault, society is the thing that has to be reorganized, and people are only illiterate because society is organized incorrectly. Because he says, in, he says uh, no one elects to be illiterate. They were made illiterate by society. Illiteracy is a verb. It would be the kind of thing that they would say about this. So he says, again, we emphasize that in the practice we propose, which is critical pedagogy, learners begin to perceive reality as a totality. So this is, again, the holistic nature of Hegelian and Marxist thought. Whereas in a reactionary practice, learners will not develop themselves, nor can they develop a lucid vision of their reality. They will overuse what we call a focalist vision of reality, by which components are seen without integration into the total composition. That sounds like, why in the world did you want to read that weird part, James? And the reason is because that's Marxist theology big time, or Hegelian theology. These are holistic visions. Marx is quite explicit. Lukács makes it very clear in history and class consciousness that it is literally not possible to understand the parts without understanding their relationship to the whole. And in fact, you must understand the whole, which includes the whole of history for Marx, in order to understand the parts. So what is being woke? Then, this is what being woke is. Learners begin to perceive reality as a totality, whereas in reactionary practice, learners will not develop themselves, nor can they develop a lucid vision of the reality. They will overuse what we call a focalist vision of reality, by which components are seen without integration into the total composition. Woke means that you're aware of the totality of the organization of society. In other words, it's structural power dynamics and the way that those are produced, and thus also the reason that they need to be overthrown. As a matter of fact, because history is a total concept, and you must understand yourself according to Lukács, in terms of the totality of history, you also know your role. In other words, you know that you're on the right side of history when you're trying to overthrow the existing system. And so woke means that you're aware of the existing system and that you're aware of your role in overthrowing it, hence the activist dimension being required. Okay, because the totality of history has to go to justice or communism or whatever word they want to use to the uh, immunization of the eschaton and the uh, self-realization of the absolute in Hegelian terms. That's the dialectical process playing out to its end at the grandest scale. So the totality of the situation includes the totality of history, and the totality of history includes getting to justice and communist utopia, and the totality of history, therefore, to understand yourself as a component part of the totality of history and the society that will produce it, you must understand yourself as an activist working on the right side of history to get there. That's why I included this. This is critical pedagogy. Again, we emphasize that in the practice we propose, which is critical pedagogy, learners begin to perceive reality as a totality, whereas in reactionary practice, learners will not develop themselves, nor can they develop a lucid vision of the reality. All they do is learn to read or do math or something like that. They will overuse what we call a focalist vision of reality, where you're seeing parts like math or words or reading by which components are seen without integration into the total composition, which is the transformation of history into the utopia, into justice, into communism. That's what critical pedagogy is actually about. And so that's a, frankly, very important 
uh, little part to understanding Freire and his his objectives. So now we're, we, we use that to get into his concept that he calls transformative literacy. So literacy is being redefined in this chapter, not to mean what can you read or can you extract meaning from what you're reading, but rather can you use ideas that you're seeing on paper or in books or whatever or in a text in order to, or that you can write or thus, as he says, speak, thus proclaim the world. Can you use that to transform the world into the Marxist utopia? He says, as illiterate learners go on to organize a more precise form of thinking through a problematical vision of their world and a critical analysis of their experience, they will be able to increasingly, I'm sorry, they will be able to be able increasingly to act with more security in the world. Literacy then becomes a global task involving illiterate learners and their relationship with the world and with others. But in understanding this global task, and based on their social experience, learners contribute to their own ability to take charge as the actors of the task, the praxis. And significantly, as actors, they transform the world with their work and create their own world. This world, created by the transformation of another world they did not create, and that now restrains them, is the cultured world that stretches out into the world of history. All this is is saying that education must be a Marxist project. Transformative literacy. Literacy means that you have become a conscious Marxist who's going to direct the path of history to create uh, the, the, the transformation of the world, to create their own world. Again, Marxism is at its kind of most simple nut and bolt. It is the idea that what separates mankind from the animals is that mankind is a subject. Therefore, he has a conscious vision in his head of that which he wants to bring into existence through his activity or his work. He builds the vision in his mind. In other words, he he makes objectively real the subjective idea that he had. Then in that objective thing he created, he sees himself as the subject, as the thing that was able to create that, and thus as the thing that's not a mere animal doing mere animal activity, but is actually doing work that produces value. And in that value, he sees the value of himself as a human. That's the Marxist theology in its, in its core. And to read from Ferrari again, and significantly as actors, they transform the world with their work and create their own world. This world created by the transformation of another world they did not create and that now restrains them is the cultured world that stretches out into the world of history. So the point of his program, the point of what he means by literacy, actually, has nothing to do with whether or not you can read the words or write the words, has nothing to do with whether you can extract the meaning or take the meaning that you want to convey and write it down by stringing the words together, functional literacy, regular basic literacy, functional literacy. It means that you become author of the word. An author of the world. John 1. Man replacing God as creator and coming through his process of activity and creation. Work. Do the work. Arbeit macht frei. Work sets free. You become conscious of yourself as creator. Subject and object become continuous. They synthesize together. That's what's going on here. That's what he's saying education should be about. 
says, in discussing the meaning of work, to give you an example of this, an old Chilean peasant. This is what the this, this is a good example, basically, to be honest with you, before I read it, of why this is bullshit. He says, in discussing the meaning of work, an old Chilean peasant once said, Now I know that I'm a cultured man. When I asked why he felt that way, why he felt cultured, he replied, Because through work and by working I changed the world. No, sorry, I got my my examples mixed up. That's the next one. Um where it's the bullshit. So this is where the the you see that the program is actually Marxist programming. Now I know that I'm a cultured man. When I asked why he felt cultured, he replied, because through work and by working, I change the world. I've come to know myself as a creator. This type of affirmation, this is Freire again, reveals people seeing at a truly practical level that their presence in the world through a critical response to this presence is implied by the knowledge that they are not only in the world, but with the world. In other words, they're in dialectical relationship with it, and in fact, its creators and its authors, and the way that they author the world is by proclaiming the world by speaking the word. It is an important new awareness when we realize we are cultured because through work and by working, we change the world, even though there's a lot to be done between the recognition of this and the real transformation of society. This understanding cannot be compared with the monotonous repetition of ba, be, be, bo, boo. Phonics. This is why your kids can't read, because they want to teach them to change the world in this way, to become little Marxists. And here we have the father of their educational method saying basic skills-based learning not only doesn't work, but it also reproduces meritocracy, which is a dominant uh, ideology, the ideological component that reproduces the false uh, world, the oppressive world that we're trying to get away from. So this is why your kids can't read. This is why your kids can't do math. This is why we have 30% of high school graduates at a functional reading level or something like this, because they've actually moved away from it. And the point of education is about raising consciousness and creating activists who feel that they can see themselves as people who transform the world and thus gain meaning as world transformers. But the only right way to change the world is through the Marxist theory. So here's where we get to the bullshit part. You see what this actually amounts to in practice. He says, at a time when his relationship to man and the world was made problematical, another Chilean peasant claimed, I now see there isn't any man without the world. The educator asked him one more problematical question. Suppose all human beings were dead, but there were still trees, birds, animals, rivers, the sea, the mountains. Would this be a world? No, he answered emphatically. Someone who could say this is the world would be missing. Through his response, our philosopher peasant, and absolute ignorant by elitist standards, raised the dialectical question of subjectivity-objectivity. No, what actually happened is the peasant confused himself and said stupid bullshit as a result of being brought into a dialectical approach to understanding the world. So again, suppose all human beings were dead, but there were still trees, birds, animals, rivers at the sea, the mountains. Would this be a world? No, he, an- he answered emphatically. This is what they're going to teach your kids to do. Would the world... So, so now we're not teaching... The- we're trying to teach this guy to read. Remember, he's a peasant who can't read. We're teaching him to read. And then this is the question you're asking him. A deep philosophical question. Would the world still exist if there was nobody here to name it? And he says, which by the way, go to your book of Genesis for that. No, he says, someone who, who could say this is the world would be missing. Of course, you know, the book of Genesis would say that God brought the world into existence and he brought uh, Adam in to help and to help him name all the things. And so here we have the Marxist positioning himself as the person who 
names the world as the world. And if there's no mo- nobody to name the world, then the world does not exist, which is a really uh, kind of backwards um, ontological project. But again, this poor peasant probably didn't learn his phonics when they were having this discussion instead. And here we have Freire celebrating this guy who probably still can't read because he said this because he says, through his response, our philosopher peasant raised the dialectical question of subjectivity, objectivity, which is literally a more or less worthless thing to be talking about at all, especially when we're dealing with somebody who can't read and needs to be able to read to be able to function in a society that's broadly literate. To kind of round this out, I'll do chapters three and four in a second podcast because this is really long. Um, On the basis of the social experience of illiterates, Freire tells us, we can conclude that only a literacy that associates the learning of reading and writing with a creative act, creative act, will exercise the critical comprehension of that experience, and without any illusion of triggering liberation, it will nevertheless contribute to its process. And of course, this is no task for the dominant classes. Okay, so I think at this point you should be thoroughly freaked the hell out about what Freire and education is about. And you should be returning to that question I opened the podcast with, which is how in the world in 1985, when this book was brought up prominently by Henry Giroux, did educators in North America look at this and say, yes, how on earth is this the book that changed the course of American education? Because you can hear what it's all about. You can also see the seeds of virtually everything that's happening that you're worried about in education for all the right reasons today. Education has been remade into a Marxist program based on a caricature of what it means to become literate and then a redefinition of what literacy means at all from basic literacy and or functional literacy over instead to political literacy, where political literacy means that you're a Marxist. And that the goal is so that you can adopt this literally dialectically religious stance where you are going to proclaim the world by speaking the word, which is the politically charged generative word that you're using instead of learning skills-based education, which is bad because it reproduces meritocracy and because apparently it doesn't induce a political consciousness or a Marxist consciousness. This is the Freirean reinvention of education. This is why I want to linger and spend so much time on Freire. This is why it's so important. So I was going to keep going, but chapters three and four, I actually have shorter notes for these. Um, so maybe I'll do three, four, and five as the next episode of the podcast, or maybe I'll just do two short ones. That'll be fun. I don't do short. But this has gotten really long, and I don't want to drag this out. Uh, in chapter three, though, as a preview, um, what we're going to find out is that this idea of changing the world and proclaiming the world, etc., is really central to what's going on. So what we're dealing with is education being remade into a religious project, and the religion is Marxism, and the theology is Marxism. Okay, and then in chapter four, uh, it's really a short chapter, and I'm almost just going to skip it because he's actually talking about specifically um, the agrarian reform movement in, in South America and how this applies to it. But there was enough there that I really wanted to be able to bring up uh, about how this is a deeply Marxist project. So next episode of the podcast, will continue with this explanation and reading through um, Paulo Freire's 
the politics of education, which we've just gone through the first two chapters. I did two podcasts on their introduction where I read them explicitly. I don't know what I'm going to do yet. Chapter five, I want to read in its totality. It's short. Um, it's about social workers, which is odd in a book about education. And then chapters six, seven, eight, and nine are crazy religious. And then the chapters after that, I don't think are actually interesting enough on my reading through it to want to linger on a lot. I think we'll have had the point. So I don't know what I'll do yet with chapters six through nine, because I tried to read through them and make notes and say, oh, I should bring this up and that. And it's like, it's like instead of it's like this paragraph and then I'll read a page or two and then that paragraph like I've done for these it's instead the other way around it's like I could take that paragraph out I could take that paragraph out and it's just like handfuls of paragraphs I could skip rather than the other way around so we'll see what I do with it um, but we are going to explore this book and the pedagogy of the oppressed in tremendous depth because we must understand what Paulo Freire did to education and now you should have kind of a jaw dropped shocked sense of it now that we've gone through just these first two chapters um, we'll catch you in the next one.